ahead and get out your Bibles and open with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. Gospel of Mark chapter 14. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand. We want to get the text to you. Everyone's going to need the scriptures in front of them, whether it's digital or printed. And go with me to the 14th chapter of Mark's Gospel. All right? So right now we're working through the Passion Narrative. And we've landed on Thursday night. This is 33 A.D. in the capital of Jerusalem. It is springtime. And this is the night before Jesus will be crucified. When he'll give his life uh, for the sins of the world. So that's where we are on Thursday night. Jesus is also secretly celebrating this Passover meal. Um, He is in hiding. He has found an owner of a home who has an upper room who is willing to shelter him. Um, Because the reality is the authorities are trying to find Jesus, they're trying to arrest him, and they're trying to kill him. Uh, They want to convince the Roman state to crucify him, which we know they eventually do. And so Jesus knows that all of this is going to take place. He's predicted it. We've seen that in the Gospel of Mark. Three times he has said exactly what was going to happen. And yet, he still goes through with this meal, and he still has some final words for his disciples. And it's 42 words to be exact. We started looking at this last week, but I want to look at it again. 42 words. Let's pick up in verse 22. Chapter 14, it reads this. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to the disciples, and they drank of it. And Jesus said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's stop there. Now here's what we have to do. To understand what's happening on this night, We have to go back in time to the first century to really get a picture of it, okay? This was Passover meal that all of the Jews were commanded to come together every springtime and celebrate. In Deuteronomy 16, in the law, it said you had to celebrate Passover within the walls of Jerusalem. So the urban area, the capital, would be swelling with people because that was the law. Now for us, I try to think of a parallel of when it's kind of everything in America shut down and we come together for a meal. Guess what that is? Just say it out loud. Oh, only a few of you celebrate Thanksgiving. The rest of you. By the way, Thanksgiving food is terrible. I think it's bland. The turkey, not for me. I know I'm offending some of you. When, I, when, when we're old enough and I get to host Thanksgiving, we're doing barbecue because I think, amen, all right? I think it's a lot better than some bland turkey. Anyway, I'm sure your grandma's turkey is great. All right, but think of Thanksgiving. It's when everything would shut down in the surrounding area of Jerusalem and they would come together with family for a meal. You would road trip all to one place for this sacred meal. And this sacred meal had a very defined script. It had a liturgy to it. Let me tell you about it. The meal was structured around four cups of wine. And there was a law in the Mishnah that said even the poorest of poor Israelite, a homeless Israelite, had to be taken in and celebrate Passover. And it says specifically, they had to be served all four cups of wine. Now, once again, wine back then wasn't like wine today. I don't think it was as strong as it was, but it was a good time. Here's how it worked. There was the initial blessing over the day, 
and over the first cup of wine, and then they would enjoy that first cup, okay? After the initial blessing, this is followed by a vet, I'm giving you details, a vegetable appetizer would be had, and the mixing of the second cup of wine, okay? And then, here's what would happen. And this is happening at the same time in every Jewish family, aunts, uncles, cousins, in a home somewhere in Jerusalem. Here's what would happen. The youngest son would then ask the patriarch of the family, usually the grandfather, this question. Every Jewish boy would ask this question. Why is this night so different from all other nights? They would ask this to the grandfather. And then the grandfather would then recount the Exodus story where Passover first happened, where God passed over their houses and liberated them from the slavery they were under in Egypt. Now, quick side question. How many of you have seen the film Prince of Egypt? Just raise your hand. I had never seen that till this weekend. So every Friday night we do movie night and we order pizza. And Danielle was like, you've never seen Prince of Egypt? I said, no. And she said, you're going to love it. It was, it was amazing. Now, you know, you know, I don't know how well they stuck to the text, but they did pretty good. And the music is phenomenal. So if you haven't seen it, Prince of Egypt, okay? So the Passover story, book of Exodus. The grandfather's retelling this story. It's then followed by the singing of what's called the first halal, which was the Psalms 113 through 115. So just imagine your whole family would a cappella sing these psalms, okay? And then... As the meal went on, the patriarch would pronounce a blessing over the bread. He would break it. Does this sound familiar? And then he would distribute it to his his family. This is followed by a third cup of wine and then more singing of the psalms. They would sing them in a hymn-like way. Look at verse 26 in your Bibles. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is following this script. It would then conclude with the last, the fourth cup of wine, and there you would have it, okay? You can see in this passage that Jesus has some of the same elements in his retelling of the Exodus story, and what would have happened that night, because he's just with his 12 disciples, they've not gone off with aunts and uncles, they've, they've stayed with Jesus, they've stayed with the rabbi, and the youngest one in the 12 would have had to ask the question to Jesus. Now, What history would tell us is that's likely John, the apostle, because he lived the longest. And so they're saying, you know, John, get up there, ask the question, right? John's probably used to his little brother or little cousin asking the question, whoever's the youngest with his family. But in this group, it's John. And so John would have initiated the night by saying, Jesus, why is this night different from all others? And then look at your Bibles, verse 22. It says that Jesus does break the bread and bless it, just like They traditionally would. And then in verse 23, it says he gives thanks for the wine and he distributes it. But somewhere in here, Jesus goes off script when he says that the wine represents his own blood. Not the blood of the lamb that would have been right there on the table that was sacrificed earlier that morning or the day prior at temple. Doesn't talk about that blood being drained out. He starts talking about his own blood. And the disciples who've heard this story every single year as as a little baby, they would have noticed that Jesus was going off script from how their grandfather told the story. 
And they definitely would have been taken aback when Jesus said, drink this cup of my blood. That was illegal for any Jew to ingest blood. Genesis 9, 4, I believe it is. Jews could not, they had a lot of laws around blood because life was in the blood. And Jesus is saying, this cup of wine represents my blood that's about to be poured out for many. So, this was Passover. This was the same Passover that their ancestors for over a thousand years had celebrated the exact same way. You weren't allowed to go off script. But now here on this night, Thursday before he's crucified, in 42 words, Jesus starts to change the script. It would seem like if you were just a fly on the wall, that Jesus is starting to inaugurate a new kind of Passover. One that's different than the ones they've been celebrating for over a millennia. He's inaugurating a new one, which is exactly what he's doing. And here's where we ask the question. What was Passover all about? Why did they come together every year and retell this story? What was its major theme? The answer is freedom. Freedom from the slavery that their ancestors were in. So think about that. Jesus is not only the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but Jesus is also a new kind of Moses who liberates us from the powers who rule over the world. I'm going to ask you to think this morning, and I want to spend the rest of this day exploring this central theme of the gospel of freedom, of liberation, that I think often gets overlooked. Can I level with you this morning? Thank you. I believe that we have a very truncated gospel in today's church. Very small. Go something like this. You're a sinner. Christ died for your sin. Believe in him and you'll go to heaven. It's kind of the fourfold way we like to say it. I believe it's a truncated version of the gospel. I think there is truth to every statement I just made. But I think it's only one part of the story. One part of the good news. And here's what's sad. Is that our surrounding culture today only seems to hear this truncated version of the gospel. They don't hear the full breadth of the, uh, of the gospel message. And because of that, it seems like they just move on to, quote unquote, more interesting things. And are captivated by this podcast and that podcast and this philosophy and that self-help and this life hack. Which all can have their place, but they're not the gospel. But they get treated like the gospel. How many of you ever done, you don't have to answer, it's fine, but the Enneagram, right? Enneagram took off both in the church and outside the church. And I can tell you, I had, I had people, young and old, treating the Enneagram like it was gospel. It has its place. It could be helpful. But too often we grab onto these things because we have such a small version of the gospel within today's church and certainly in the culture. And they look at it and they say, nah, I'll move on. Right? They say, well, that's good for you, but I don't feel compelled. And that's a tragedy. And I think 
that sometimes it's no different within the walls of our own church. We've been handed that small gospel. And here's the reality. If we, follow me on this, if we have a small gospel, then we have a small God. And if we have a small God, then we have small worship. And if we have small worship, then we lead small lives. Every human being was made to be caught up in something big, massive, infinite. That's worship. You're made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. Everyone is looking for something to sacrifice their lives to. Worship. We are religious creatures to the core. Deeply spiritual. And the culture will find something. And even the Christian who has the spirit of God in them will find something to worship if they have a small vision and version of the gospel and the God that they seek. Amen? So I want to change that. I want to change that just a little bit this morning. I want to look at one other layer of what Christ did on the cross, and that is the work of, of freedom. This week is freedom. Last week was atonement, and next week is, is kingdom. But I want to look at freedom. All right? You're going to need your Bibles because these aren't my opinions. These are God's words. So turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation, chapter 1. We want to find this work of freedom in the cross. Revelation 1, last book of the Bible. We're going to pick up in the first chapter, verse 5. It reads, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us, from our sins by his blood. So look at those words carefully. He's done a freedom work. The freedom work has been from our sins, and the freedom work has happened because of his death, his blood. Follow me? Turn to the fifth chapter of Revelation. You're going to see a similar theme there. This is a scene in heaven. This is. A song that they sing to the Lamb, which is Jesus. Pick up in verse 9. They sing this to Christ. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed. That's slave language. You ransomed people for God. You freed them. Look how it goes on. From every tribe and language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom, and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So just in these two samples, you can see a clear connection between Christ's death and the work of liberation. That is, sacrificial death for sins frees us from a kind of deadly slavery that humans are in. And you've heard me, if you've been around in the past, biblically identify what those, there's three major slave masters that every human person is under. I think we have that on the screen. It's not hard to remember. Sin, Satan, and death. I tried to find a death one with an S, but I just can't. All right? Sin, Satan, and death 
are the three major slave masters that the Bible identifies that every human is under and no one can escape them on their own power. That's how it talks about it. Let me give a little detail. Every person is captured by a sinful nature. You're born with it. You don't believe me? Have children. (laughs) Number two, I have three. Sinful, just as I am. Me, me, me. I, I, I. Possessive. The the love of toys is the root of all evil for children. Just (laughs) trust me. As we become older, as the scriptures say in 1 Timothy, it's the love of money. Secondly, every person is under the rule of dark power. You see this in the scriptures. Dark satanic power has influence. Jesus says that he's the, the God of this world, lowercase g, that he, that he puts a veil and blinds the minds of unbelievers from seeing the truth in the gospel. Thirdly, this one is easy. We're under the slave master of death. Every single person will die, and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. Now, you've heard me talk about this in the scriptures before, but what you haven't heard in more detail is both the nature of sin's captivity and then secondly, how this dark power works in our world. This dark satanic power, how it works. Because here's the thing. If we leave it at Jesus died for my sins and don't let the rest of the Bible speak, we will end up with that small gospel and we will end up with a small witness in the world. And we just can't be okay with that. And so I want to look deeper into this. All right? Turn with me now. I told you you're going to be flipping. Romans chapter 1. Book of Romans chapter 1. It's right after the book of Acts. This is Paul inspired by the Spirit saying some very clarifying things about humanity. Romans 1. Picking up in verse 21. For although they knew God, he's talking about all of humanity, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see that theme. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is idolatry. And then verse 24 Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature, that's us, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. There's a lot here. You could spend over a month just on these words, but there's a few things I want to gather for today. What it's saying here is that humans were made to know and worship God. We already established that. But it's saying since the beginning, our ancestors, look at the language, verse 24, excuse me, 25 and 23, we exchange the glory of God for idols. That's verse 23. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 25, we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, let me level with you again. It's not simply that this happened back then, but that it happens today. That's the same thing about the garden. However you want to look at, you know, literal, metaphorical, poem, 
an actual six days, more than six days. You know what? I don't know and you don't know. Only God knows. Okay? But the reality of that story in Genesis 3 is that it's not simply that sin happened. It's that it happens now. Okay? And I want to talk about that. Sin, in its essence, is idolatry. Sin in its essence is idolatry. Let me explain. When we serve and worship something in creation above the creator, that's idolatry. It can be any number of things. And everyone falls to this. The classic three big idols of history are, you know them, money, sex, and power. If you can sit here and tell me that money, sex, and power don't rule the world, then... You know, you'd have to be very convincing. These are three major idols that have ruled our world. Why? Because we treat these as gods. Have you ever been tempted to treat money as God? Or power? Or sex? People can fall prey to worshiping them, to serving them, and here's the big one, to sacrificing their lives to them. We know of friends or family that have gone down that dark path uh, further than many others. And they've literally sacrificed their life on the altar of one of those idols. Now, there's many more than just those three. And some of these might hit closer to home than others. There's things like security that we can worship. There's comfort. There's success. Is success bad? Is comfort bad? No. But when you serve it as higher than the creator, it becomes an idol. Affirmation can be a serious idol that can rule your life. Status, right? I, I just, I, you've heard it. I won't get on a soapbox. Give me, give me 60 seconds. I feel for Generation Z that has only known a world where status is everything. Because their life is not private, it's public on social media, and it's waiting for approval or disapproval. I just, I can't imagine what that's like to live in that kind of environment. And it doesn't mean just the younger generations are on social media, the older generations are too, and we can fall prey to that. But you know when you're younger and life is still a big question mark, you're looking for affirmation. You're looking for approval, you're looking for security. And now life is not a private thing with you and your parents and close trusted friends. Now it's this public thing that everyone has to weigh on and say yes or no. And can you imagine that? This can become an idol. Now, often what gets missed is what happens when we each fall prey to this. When we worship these things. There's a deeper thing taking place. And what happens when the entire human race does this and falls to this kind of idolatry. Now, now, this kind of biblical thinking is above my pay grade, so I'm going to put up a quote. This is from a great scholar named N.T. Wright, and he's going to describe what happens, not just individually, but across all of humanity when we live out Romans 1 and we serve these idols. He says this, When humans worship parts of creation or forces within creation... They give away their power to those aspects of the created order, which will then come to rule over them. Sin, for Paul, is therefore not simply the breaking of moral codes, 
though it can be recognized in that way, it is far more deeply the missing of the mark of genuine humanness through the failure of worshiping idols rather than the true God. Wright goes on, that action, to say it again, hands over to lifeless forces or powers the authority that should have belonged to, the hu- to humans in the first place. The problem is not that humans have misbehaved and need punishing. The problem is that their idolatry, coming to expression in sin, has resulted in slavery for themselves and for the whole creation. It's quite a thought and a biblical one. Let me put it in simple terms that I understand. As God's image bearers, we were commissioned in Genesis 1 to rule over creation. But the reality is, is that creation has come to rule over us. We've been given that authority, that power to have dominion and stewardship and cultivate. But the history of humanity is one where we've given that power over to these different idols and they've come to rule and enslave us. Let me add on to this really nice cupcake that I'm making for you this morning. (laughs) Satanic forces that the Bible talks about are behind these idols. They are. And they have been trapping humanity in this kind of slavery. Now, many of you might be thinking, I know we have some guests here today. Does the rest of the Bible really talk about these dark powers as much as you seem to think they do? Is sin and idolatry really wrapped up in all of that? And I'm glad you asked that question this morning because I want to show you. Let me give you a sample of text. It should be on the screen. Three shorter verses that will show you the theme of these satanic power in Scripture. Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. That's the language. Against the powers. Against the world forces of this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Very clear. 1 Peter 3. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Lastly, Colossians 1. For by him, this is Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. And I didn't know, just quick, I didn't know these things were created, but look at the verse. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. We live in a deeply spiritual world. We're modern Westerners. We often aren't awake to these things as some parts of our our, our world are, but it's real. Throughout scripture, you see these powers intertwined in our, our rulers, dominions. There's different words. And so the biblical worldview is not gonna allow you to simply see your sin as breaking moral code. It's deeper than that. When we give into the idols in our life, something is happening. And then on a world level, not just individual, these dark powers that stand behind the idolatry, 
They need to be broken. Their power needs to be broken by Christ. This is where we get into the cross. Jesus needed to win a grand victory over them and break their power of slavery over the human race. See, we're getting into a bigger gospel here. Far bigger than you're a sinner and you need forgiveness and Jesus died, believe and go to heaven. That's true, but there's more. There's this group of men and women called the early church fathers and church mothers. This was the first three centuries since uh, the, the, the gospel of Christ. And so, funny example, but you know this to be true. The further you get away in, 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 in mileage and in time from the original source, the, the, sometimes the worse that thing gets, right? For example, how many of you have, have had Starbucks in Seattle? It's fantastic. It's really good coffee. You have Starbucks further and further away, the quality goes down. You look at me like I'm crazy. It's true. Think about Waffle House. I've talked to people who live in Canada, people who live in Montana, and they talk about Waffle House like it's this terrible place that no one would ever go. I think, we love Waffle House in Atlanta. Why? Because it started here. Quality control happens closer in proximity and time. None of you seem to be agreeing with me. It's true. (laughs) Try it out. In some senses, it's true with the Christian faith. The earliest centuries are closest to Christ and to the gospel. And so it doesn't mean that they supersede authors today, but there's something value to be, to be heard from someone that close to what happened. The church fathers, if you read their text, they held this idea that on the cross, God in Christ won a great victory over the powers of evil. That's the language they use. And this term came about called Christus Victor. Christus Victor. Christ as this victorious warrior that has come to do battle. Let me show it to you. You good? All right. Colossians. Don't believe me about Starbucks, but go to Colossians. Colossians 2. I want to show you this theme of battle, of victory, of Christus victor. Colossians 2, verse 13. It reads, And you who were dead in your trespasses, or another word for that is sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This God set aside, nailing it to the cross. Watch this language. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. That's the language that Paul's using to define what happened at the cross. There are other places where he talks about atonement and forgiveness of sin. And you see some of that forgiveness right here in the text. But you see warlike language, do you not? Look at verse 15. He disarms them. Think of even what's happening in Ukraine, a war that's taking place right now. It says he puts them to open shame. And then lastly, he triumphs over them. 
Let me bring this to home. This is why when a person who's united to Christ by faith, that when they die, they actually live forever in God's kingdom because Jesus defeated death. He disarmed it. He triumphed over it. The slave masters that have ruled humanity. That's the language. This is why when a person united to Christ by faith cannot be overtaken by the devil. Why? Because Christ on the cross defeated the devil. And those that have the spirit of Christ within them cannot be overtaken. One other example. This is why a person united to Christ by faith has the power of the spirit to overcome any bondage to sin that they have. Why? Because here, sin has been defeated. And there are countless testimonies, real evidence around the globe for the last two millennia, real accounts you can look into of this victorious, strange power that lives inside the life of a believer. There are accounts of those who have fallen prey to idolatry in their life and they've come to Christ and they've tried everything else, every other rehab, every other group, every other thing. But when they come to know Christ and his spirit lives inside them, they get in a good church and they, they, they use the means of grace, they break that power that has ruled over their life. Millions of people can testify to Billions of people we'll see one day can testify that even though they've died, as Jesus said to the criminal on the cross who believed in him, that they will be with Jesus when they die in paradise. We'll see it. Christ has won a real cosmic victory at the cross. But here's the problem. We often stop there. And in so doing, we make the gospel small. What do I mean? We make the gospel very personal, very individualistic, which sounds like Americans. But we lose the global and cosmic effect of the cross. We can, without knowing it, reduce the gospel down in size by over-individualizing it and not recognizing the bigger accomplishments that it has. And too often, the unbelieving world can look in on Christianity and say things like, when it's so individualistic, well, that's fine for you. That path, that's good for you. But it's not for me. I'm glad it works for you. I'm glad you're a religious person. Don't we love it when we get called religious? Oh, yeah, you know, Chris is really religious. We work together. He's a very religious guy. That's good for you, but it's not for me. Right? Because... They'll treat Christianity as a personal choice amongst many other choices, as a religion amongst many other religions. And they do this because we've treated Christianity this way. We've reduced it in size and we haven't celebrated enough the fact that Christ is a warrior. Christ is victor who's defeated death. Let's really think about that. That when you die, if you're united, if you're united to Christ, You will not die again. You'll be in paradise. You'll be in the kingdom of heaven. We haven't celebrated that enough. We haven't celebrated that Christ has defeated Satan who rules so much of the world. His power has been broken. He still has time on this earth 
but he's ultimately been defeated by the cross. Here's what happens. We treat Christianity like a personal religion, but Christianity isn't a religion when you look at Scripture. It's a kingdom. It's a kingdom. Jesus did not go around announcing, hey, Christianity is here. Repent and believe in this new religion. That's not what he said. He came and he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. We've shrunk it down and we've lost the biblical paradigm of kingdom. Christ launched a kingdom after his resurrection that defeated the powers of darkness and now he lays claim to the entire world. It's his. As Abraham Kuyper, a theologian, Dutch theologian once said, there is not one square inch of planet earth that Christ does not say, mine. I own it. I love it. And I rule it. What is Jesus saying at his great commission in Matthew 28? We make it about discipleship, and it is, but we miss the first part of what he says. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I've won it. It's mine. What happens is that Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, because of it, the entire world and the entire cosmos is now a different place, not simply your own soul. That's true. And you'll never hear me not preach a message that says, this is the full gospel. Now you, you, young man, young woman, need to repent and believe. It is individual, but it is also far, far bigger. And our culture needs to hear that gospel. Let me take you to one other place. Watch what Jesus says about his coming death right before it happens. It's in John. It's in the gospel of John. Turn there. John 12. Not how, I don't know, name your favorite Christian pastor or writer or speaker. Not how, John 12, not how they define what Jesus did on the cross, but what Jesus defines. John 12, verse 27. Jesus' own words. He says, Now is my soul troubled. This is right before the cross. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has, not come, for, has, has come for your sake, not mine. And he says this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men and women to myself. Because of the cross, the whole world is free now to find and worship God. That's the work of the cross. He says, the rule of this world that blinded, 2 Corinthians, all the minds of unbelievers has been cast out. 
And any human, doesn't matter how entrenched in the slavery of sin and idolatry and death and the power of sin, doesn't matter how overruled they are, if they call on my name because I've won the victory and all authority is mine, I will show up and I will free them. Because I own the world and I've cast out the ruler. Acts 26, Jesus says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Because of the cross, the world is a different place. Humanity has been liberated, and now all people can worship God in Jesus' name. Amen? So, This is a far fuller, richer, more biblical gospel. This is what the apostles and the early church members, the martyrs, gave their life for. And so we have to let all of the gospel speak. And I believe when we do, and when we share that gospel, Christ will have a huge witness in our church. I want to end by saying this to you. Some of you may be visiting, some adults, some college students. Um, here's what I want to say, and I say this humbly, but I say it confidently. If you want to know the full gospel, and if you want to know the true Christianity of Scripture, then stick around. This is what we're all about at Grace Athens. How many passages did we go to this morning? I don't know. Why? I don't come with a sermon. I come with the Word. I want you to see Too often the church has fallen prey to pastors' opinions. And what they need is someone to hold up the text and say, take us into the world of Scripture and show us who Jesus is. And that's what we're about. I can tell you this, if you're visiting, we're not perfect. There's a lot we don't have, okay? These chairs, we had to go grab them. When you came in, there was nothing here. I mean, there's just plenty that we don't have. We meet in a cafeteria. And I love it. But one thing that I believe we do have is a passion to know God. The God of the Bible and the God of the Spirit. And so if that's you, um, you're right at home. You're right at home because that's the journey we're on together. And you're invited to be a part of it.